Anyway, my name is Colin. If I've met everybody, yes, oh, I'm still called Colin. But... All right. So, keep your Bibles open, and you've got an outline there. Just jiggle about. So, I used to work as um, before this. I used to work as a radiographer, doing medical image. And when I was graduating, I was 21. My clinical tutor on placement told me, Colin, you're in line, you're going to get the, um, a prize for consistent clinical development. hundred pounds. A lot of money in 1994. I thought, oh, that sounds good. What is it? You know, what's it for? And she explained that I'd done really well um, becoming a competent radiographer, but that when I first started, she was really worried I wouldn't make it. Because she said, Colin, you were so shy, you were too frightened even to go into the waiting room and call out somebody's name. Now, I'd forgotten all about that, but she was right. And years later, I was the clinical tutor training students on placement myself. And I would encourage struggling students um, with the story of how it was that I won what was, let's face it, the Dunces Prize, okay? The Sympathy Prize. Because remembering where I came from helped me and it helps them to appreciate how far we could come. Now, this passage tonight begins, remember. And the Apostle Paul here is writing to the Ephesian church to remind them of their roots, to remind them of where they come from and how far they've come by God's power and by um, grace through Jesus. So this passage is all about what Jesus has done for them and done for us. But um, first, let's recap where we're up to uh, in this letter to the Ephesians. So first, Paul um, was getting us to join in praising God that we have every spiritual blessing in Jesus. So everything we need to live in perfect peace with God. Uh, We learned that God's big plan is to unite everything under Christ. Uh, And Paul was praying that we know God and that we know these blessings that we already have better. So that we know we have certain hope. We know that we're God's treasure. We know that we've got God's power available to us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's at work in us. And then last week Mark helpfully showed us that we're saved by grace. Uh, It's an undeserved free gift. And we receive salvation by faith through water pipes or something like that, wasn't it? Um, not by doing good works. That was an illustration you used. That's the conduit, sorry. Um, not by doing good works, but in order to do good works that God's already prepared for us to do um, in thanks for already being saved. So that's where we've been. Here's where we're going. So Paul's now encouraging the Ephesians to remember what they were. That'll be our first point. And knowing that will help us appreciate uh, the second point, what Jesus has done for us, um, um, knowing better the blessings we have in Christ. And thirdly, we can remember how we are now. So just three main points. So first of all, Paul tells the Ephesian church to remember what you were. So have a look at verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. There was a deep-seated division. So Paul's writing to Gentile converts. So Gentile just means not Jewish, uh, not part of Israel, just like you or me, as far as I know. Now, we find it hard to get our heads around a division between Jew and Gentile, but 
we get name calling, don't we? You know, kind of us and them language. You get it all the way through school. So Jews called them, the Ephesians, uncircumcised and themselves the circumcision. So you always make yourself sound more important if you put the in front of your name. The Tim. Sounds good. The Mark. Yeah. Uh, it's like Jews were saying of Gentiles, like the only thing that's important about you is that you're not a Jew. That's all we care about. So the hatred levels uh, were right up there. God had chosen Israel as a specifically chosen nation, right? A specially chosen nation, just because he loved them. And the law he had given to Israel was supposed to make them stick out like a sore thumb compared to the rest of the world, but in a good way in a way that would show how good God is to all the other nations, um, to bless them. But instead, Israel forgot her vocation. And instead of using her favored position with God to bless non-Jews, she used it as an excuse to treat them as less than human, to look down on them. So Israel did stick out like a sore thumb by getting up everyone's noses. And verse 12 tells us the desperate state that this left the people of Ephesus in. They were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants, so not in line to receive any of the promises that God had given to his people. And worse, they were without hope and without God. When I was younger, I made the harebrained decision to go flight only, uh, to Rhodes, one of the Greek islands. I thought, I'll, we'll just fly there and I'll work out the accommodation when I get there. No, the problem was, there was a striking... I only had travel... I didn't have a credit card. I only had traveler's checks and cash. But the trouble was, there was a strike in Greece, which meant I couldn't get any currency at the airports. So I had almost nothing. So I arrived in Rhodes without even enough money to get a taxi to the main town. Meanwhile, everyone else on the plane... Uh, was met by, they were on package tours, so they were met by over-enthusiastic reps telling them how wonderful they were, herding them onto nice coaches to take them to their pre-arranged accommodation. They had hope, and I was hopeless. Uh, eventually, I found some Irish lads who'd been as stupid as I was, and we uh, cobbled something together. But Israel should have been like those people on the package tour encouraging me onto their coach. Israel should have been like those package door people putting me up in their hotel. But imagine them instead treating me as if it was a scabby dog. Or imagine there'd been a long history of people like me at the airport stealing their coaches. That's how the Jews and Gentiles were divided. So the Gentile Ephesians were hopelessly lost, following false religion, um, not knowing the only true and living God and not set apart for, for God's promises. And that's most people in our world today. Groups of people divided and hostile to each other, like lost sheep without a shepherd, not knowing God or hostile to God. So how's God, how's God's plan to unite, unite everything when everyone, people are so divided? How's that going to work? In Christ. is how? So chapter 2, verse 13. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the Ephesian Gentiles, same as us, were far off from God, same as we were, but we've been brought near when we were made right with God by the blood of Christ. That's another way of saying Jesus' sacrificial death for us on the cross. Paying for our sins, taking our punishment so we can be forgiven. But why does Paul want them to remember how far off we once were? And, and why do we get people to share testimonies? Well, it's a good thing to do because firstly, it glorifies God. It gives us um, real life relation examples of God's grace at work. Um, and we can praise God for that. But secondly, it's good to remember how you were because it keeps us grounded in God's grace. It helps us remember that our, that our being saved, our being adopted as one of God's children, it's not because we're great, because there's something special about us. It's because God is great. So it's good to remember because it glorifies God, because it keeps us grounded. And thirdly, it helps us to know better the blessings we have in Christ. So it's like, I don't know if you've got any like distant cousins, young relatives. Um, you might say, so imagine you've got a distant relative. You, uh, you remember him as a kid, um, a kid running around playing with his toys. But then you go to a wedding or something and you bump him to him again. He's got a beard and a man bun and half his legs covered in tattoos. You see a big difference because you've not seen him since he was little. You see a big difference to how things were. And as we all remember our roots, where we've come from, we can be encouraged by how much God has been at work in us. So look back to be encouraged and look back to be compassionate. So don't be like the Jews were, treating those who don't know God as somehow less than yourself. Because but for God's grace you would be without hope in the world too. So have Jesus' compassion for those who don't know good, know God. Jesus' self-sacrificing compassion. See, Jesus didn't settle for leaving the Ephesians or anyone else without hope, without God in the world, even though it meant for him going to a cruel death. And so neither should we. And that's why we keep sharing the good news about Jesus the only one who can bring us near to God. So that's the first point. Uh, that's where we were. Now let's remember what Jesus has done, verses 14 to 18. So it's not just, firstly, it's not just that Jesus has brought us peace. Jesus is our peace, verse 14. For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus is our peace. So peace here means well-being in the widest sense you can think of, including salvation, um, including harmonious relationship with God. And that peace is found in believing and trusting in Jesus. And Jesus has brought us peace by doing three things. 
by abolishing the law, creating a new humanity, and reconciling us to God. We'll go through those each um, one at a time. But all of these are done, verse 16, through the cross. So firstly, Jesus destroyed the barrier between Jew and Gentile by, verse 15, setting aside in his flesh the law. So in the flesh, again, he's referring to his death on the cross. And this has nullified or abolished the the Old Testament law. All of it. Whole kit and caboodle. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, oh, there's no more law, so I can go stealing now? I can dishonor my mother and father? Well, what it means is the law contract with, that God had with the Jews, so Ten Commandments, for example, has been replaced by a new contract with Jews and Gentiles. So we're still under some law, for example, we've been made for good works, Ephesians 2 verse 10. But that contract made in the Sinai, uh, Sinai is, is not a direct guide to how to live anymore. So let me explain that a bit. Um, some parts of this abolished law, abolished Old Testament law, um, are also how we should still, still how we should live today. For example, do not steal. While other parts aren't appropriate for us to follow anymore. So, for example, in the Old Testament law, there's, there are ceremonial practices that God commanded his people to follow um, to mark them out as his people. So, for example, circumcision. And there was a whole sacrificial system which helped the people to see their sin, helped them to see their proud rebellion against God, that that made them spiritually unclean and couldn't approach God without purification. So it was useful for helping them see how seriously God takes sin and, and how they needed purifying. But it was all a shadow. It didn't actually deal with sin. But it pointed to a reality that would. It was pointing to Jesus' death in the, on the cross, which actually did, for real, what the ceremonial law was just a shadow of. So Jesus sacrificed really does clean away our sin when we trust and believe in him. So now the mark of belonging to God isn't whether you are Jewish or circumcised or following the law anymore. The mark of whether you belong to God or not is if you follow Jesus. So no one can insist on circumcision or any of the other ceremonial stuff anymore without denying what Jesus has achieved on the cross. Uh, there are other parts of this abolished law that are more kind of moral laws. So they show us what God is like. They show us that God is faithful and loving and fair. And much of, that behavior, much of what it says is affirmed in the New Testament. So nine of the Ten Commandments are affirmed somewhere in the New Testament. Um, and the Sabbath is dealt with separately in Hebrews. Read that. It's complicated. Go into it. But... Um, So, for example, if you quick flick over to chapter 6, verse 2. Aaron, just read that out for us. Shout it out. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. Thank you. So that's one of the Ten Commandments being affirmed. So the law is, although abolished... 
Old Testament law abolished is still a great gift to us because it helps us to know how to live a life that pleases God. Um, it helps us know what good works we're saved to do in response to him saving us by grace. But the law has been set aside in Jesus' flesh on the cross and the judgment we deserve for breaking it has also been paid for on the cross. So I've got a verse from Colossians. It just, it's very similar to Ephesians, lots of way, Colossians, but this is just a bit clear on this point. Um, for he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So, peace by abolishing the law. And then, so, in so doing, Jesus created a single humanity. So, back to Ephesians 2, verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So back in chapter 1, verse 10, remember the plan to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And what we're seeing here is that through the cross, Jesus has fulfilled an essential part of the plan, uniting these two strands of humanity, Jew and Gentile, together in one new variety, Christian. So any equality before God of Jew and Gentile is abolished. It's gone out the window. There's a new unity in Christ. So abolish the law, single humanity, and thirdly, Jesus reconciled us to God. Jesus brings us peace with God. He's dealt with our hostility to one another and God, reconciling us with him. So on the cross, Jesus abolished the ceremonial law, which separated Jew from Gentile. And on the cross, Jesus abolished the condemnation of the law, of us breaking the law that separated us from God. Now through Jesus, we have verse 18, access to the Father through one spirit. Um, it's, it's right and proper that the church has leaders. That's pretty clear from the New Testament. But I've, I find now, when I see old friends, people from work and that, they say, oh, what do I call you now? Do I call you vicar or minister or pastor? And I say, well, just call me Colin. But what I will not allow is anyone to call me priest. Because that idea of priest carries the idea of a mediator. Someone you, I could go between, between you and God. And you don't need one. You have direct access to the Father through the Spirit. So use it. Pray to him. Worship him. Talk to him. And just a word about church unity as well. Um, Jesus died to put hostility and barriers between believers to death, to abolish all that. So it goes against God's purposes in Jesus for us to have hostility between us. Now we'll see in the, shortly that there are some things we, we must not compromise on. But where it's within our power to do so, we must keep peace and unity with each other in our church. And the other application I want to ask you is, 
Do you feel at peace? Jesus is our peace. Do you feel at peace? Sometimes we can feel like the, the grass is greener on the other side, that living as a Christian is all too hard, that you're really missing out and doing what your friends do or what you want to do. Uh, and you can end up feeling like it's, it's costing too much. Now, it might sometimes feel like your peace can be found in the world and its ways. But the reality is Jesus is our peace. The world will shortchange you. Jesus is better. And without him, we are without hope and without God. So we've remembered how we were, remembered what Jesus has done for us, and now we can remember what you are. So if last week um, we saw what having every spiritual blessing means for us individually, um, that we've been brought from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ, then this week we see how God is at work in us corporately, um, beginning in the here and now, to unite us in Christ as church. Because what is true invisibly in the heavenly realms is true visibly in church. And Paul uses three images to get across what's happening as we come together as church. So verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. So we're citizens together of God's kingdom. So whereas God's people used to be the, church, the nation state of Israel, now his people are all who follow Jesus. So here's my certificate that proves to you, if you're in any doubt, that I am an Australian citizen. Very good. I've got most of the questions right. I couldn't remember Don Bradman's batting average on the test, but I passed anyway. So that, me being a citizen of Australia means I get to enjoy all the privileges of being an Australian. Um, I also promise to act in Australia's best interests. I think I'm doing that. That's pretty good. I also um, promise to uphold Australia's values. Does anybody know what Australia's values are? I'm not sure. I'll uphold what I think they should be, I said. But it represents that I belong, uh, well, not to a kingdom, to a commonwealth of people, made up of people. And the reality is, we, uh, what Paul's saying here, here, foreigners and strangers, we all used to be spiritual refugees. So adrift, belonging nowhere. But now we enjoy all the benefits of being directly ruled by our loving creator. We're also, verse 19, members of his household. So now we get much more up close and personal. This means like we live in the same place. We're part, members of God's family with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that brings. So we aren't just a, a bunch of individuals here who happen to be in the same place. We're family. We're one in Christ. In what matters most in life... We share a common bond. 
So we're citizens, we're members of a household. And finally, verse 21, we're becoming a holy temple. So uh, the temple in Jerusalem um, where, was where God's glory was supposed to be present in a more tangible way. And it was, if you lived in Jerusalem, it's a constant reminder of God's promise to be with his people. In Ephesus, they're the temple for Artemis or Diana, um, which is huge, dominated the skyline. And both temples would dominate your thinking, your belief, the way society worked, the way people lived. But now we, us, verse 21, we're God's holy temple. Through this temple that we are, God's ministering to the world, and God is present in this holy temple, his church. So for followers of Jesus, gathering with other believers as church is to dominate our thinking, how we live our life. But have a look around. We're a really disparate bunch, really, aren't we? And sooner or later, you'll end up at church with someone you find it hard to get on with. And if we're anything like the rest of the world, with its hostility and divisions, what hope have we got of sticking together and God working, working in the world through us? How, how are we going to overcome our differences? I mean, if you look at church history, the main lesson I got from doing church history at Bible college is just how absolutely against the odds it is that there is any church at all. It's remarkable it's survived this long. So how has it? Well, for starters, what we are about as a people is set out for us. We are built, verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That is, their teaching is found in the New Testament. So in practice, that works out that if it isn't in the Bible, then it's not what church is about. Um, So that clears the decks. And it sets the parameters of what what we can and what we can't live with in unity. And that sets our priority of reading and preaching and singing God's word. Because that's where we find the truth about Jesus, our peace, where our foundation comes from. But of course on our own, we would end up hopelessly divided. So why does church work? Why against all the odds has it survived? Um, We'll pick it up in verse 20 again. Um, So we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Jesus holds together and grows his church. And God fills us, his church, with his Holy Spirit, with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So when you go back to school or to uni or to work on Monday, and people ask you what you did at the weekend, if you say, um, I went to church, you can sometimes feel like it sounds a bit wimpy, can't you? But given that everything is headed toward being united in Christ, under Christ, 
And church is the visible working out of the fact that that invisible reality has already begun. That means that church is the best thing you could have done with on a weekend. Or to put it negatively, if you treat church like it, it doesn't really matter, as if it's an option rather than a priority, then you're going against God's purposes of gathering a people united under Christ. Now, let me say, I think very few Christians consciously give up on church and decide, oh, I don't need to go to church. But what tends to happen is you make a long list of small decisions that individually are pretty innocent, but when they accumulate and knock into one another, it makes it less and less likely that you'll get to church or to Bible study. So look out for that. Church is, eternally speaking, the highlight of your week. Okay? If this is what Jesus is holding together, if this is what Jesus is building up, doesn't it make sense to make absolutely sure that we stay in fellowship with one another? So to sum up, to finish, remember your past. Remember your past to be encouraged and to help you have God's heart for the lost. Remember what Jesus has done for you on the cross, reconciling you to one another and to God, abolishing the judgment we deserve. Don't look for peace elsewhere. You'll never find it. Christ is our peace. And work things out to make sure you're committed to staying part of God's plan in the here and now, church. Assured that as you do, Jesus holds us together and, and builds us up as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus you've not left us um, without hope and without God in the world. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for reconciling us um, to one another and to you on the cross. Thank you that Jesus is our peace. Please keep us trusting in him uh, and confident in him to bring us peace. And please help us um, prioritize church as um, it's the um, ground zero for how you're working in the world now. Amen.